You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Parol Segel. Hello, could I please speak with Parul Segal? This is Parul. How are you, Paul? Parul, what a pleasure to have you on this call. Thank you for taking it. We've been waiting. I mean, we've been waiting so long to speak to each other, um, and I must say, I'm, I was, every every week I've just been joyously anticipating this moment, which brings me immediately to what I I, I wish to to begin this conversation with, which is. Your role as a critic seems to be inspired by kind of a ravenous curiosity. And I'd like you to, to speak about, about this curiosity and how it informs maybe your métier. Mm, that's a beautiful question. And I, I should preface everything by saying, I'm sorry it's taken us so long to talk. But, oh, you know, please. things have been so calm. Things yes. so calm in the world. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. No, no irony intended. I, I, I think. Yeah. I, I think I might know what you're referring to. <laughs> but no, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful question, and I think I love that word ravenous. I love the word, the way it, it sort of links to appetite, and I think that you know, I, I came to criticism, you know, very, very early as a reader, and it just seemed. It's like this amazing backstage path to everything, to every subject in the world, and being led through it by a writer who would sort of give me a vocabulary for understanding it, a vocabulary of pleasure, context, and it just became a way of eating up entire fields and disciplines. And, you know, even now when I think of any subject that matters a lot to me, whether it's poetry or visual arts, you know, it, it's always with, uh, I remember the, the Virgil, I remember the shepherd that first brought me to it, you know, and even poets now, when I think of Dickinson, for me, it's always Maureen and McLean's Emily Dickinson that I think of, you know. Um, so that that was a sort of introduction to it. And I think in terms of actually writing criticism, the way that curiosity functions is as, as much as possible to follow the writers that I've loved and to constantly think about criticism as a way of interrogating what I'm looking at, um, the sort of somatic feelings, you know, in, in the body, in the mind, and then to bring language to it. But it's, it's much more out of a sense of inquiry than I think pronouncement that feels exciting to me in what I do. You know, uh, it's amazing you should mention Dickinson. In preparing to speak for you over these last few months, and I feel like this delay has been delicious because it's permitted me to read more of you, to reread more of you, and to talk to you precisely about appetite and to talk to you precisely about the poets and writers you love. And I'll come to the notion of a critic and perhaps love more than criticism as it's usually understood, which is, you know, putting people down, negative reviews, which I don't think you are prone to. I mean, you have pronounced yourself at time against certain books, but I think 
when I think of you, I think of you in the spirit of Cioran, who wrote a book called Exercice d'admiration, admiration exercises. But you mentioned Dickinson, and th there is a line in Dickinson I love, which made me think of you, where she writes, the soul should always stay ajar stand ajar, ready to welcome the ecstatic experience. It's after that, Parul, that you are. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, it, it's what I try to be in, in service and in pursuit of. Um, I love that word. I love that word ajar because it, I think it also creates a sense of, of thinking as a physical space and thinking in a body. And um, yeah, I, I think that I... When I first fell in love with criticism, and I think it's when I first fell in love with writing in general, it was very much directed to people or sort of influenced by people like Bach, so people who had that feeling of rapture constantly and discovery. And it doesn't mean a lack of rigor, but no, I think it no, means, no, no, no. you know, if anything, it's the opposite. I think that, you know, to, to look at the world and to look at language with great attentiveness can then also create the moment where you write a very... Um, even a very severe review because it's in defense of what you think is, is important and beautiful and, and fugitive in writing. But I think the, the other side of that is something I think about a lot, which is the sort of occupational hazard of the critic. How do you stay attentive? How do you stay ajar? Especially when you're doing it frequently, you're writing every week, you're writing, you know, in the case that I am perched in a certain kind of institution. So how do you maintain sensitivity and that i think is the is the interesting practice that uh, has to keep going on in terms of reading and in terms of living so how do you remain so, so how do you remain in love how do i keep the how do i keep that the, the sensorium still uh open um i think it's i stay in very close contact with those very seed foundational texts of mine, you know, um, and those writers. And I am a really ravenous rereader. For years, I used to have a rule for myself that any new book I read, I have to go back and reread something. Because that's, mm, again, it's mm. the training of reading. It's the training of attention. And it's the training of, you know, you're not reading for what happens, but you're reading for the effect. And you're also reading, when you reread things, you're rereading yourself in a way. And it's, I have the very humbling experience of when I'm rereading texts. And as I was preparing for my talk with you and you know, looking through these books that I had told you were important to me. I'm reading them, I'm reading them, and I'm having these revelations, these epiphanies. And and I look in my marginalia, and I've noted down every single thing. Yeah, I know that. I know the feeling, and you know. The, you know I, that feeling that course. you're you're just relearning things. You're sort of saying that God, I, am I am I this limited creature who is going to have you know eleven or twelve great deep feelings and thoughts, and I'm going to forget them and then read this text and have them again, and suddenly see my my you know handwriting as a twenty five year old, as a sixteen year old, and then as a however. In, in its cramped little formation with its exclamation marks. And and it's, it's, it's that sort of thing that you, you have to stay in conversation with oneself. And, uh, and I think as you're writing, to constantly be quick to sort of understand one's own rhetorical moves and the moves of one's own mind and the, and the sort of limitations of one's own taste. And I think that the work of criticism can really help you do it if you... Um, are interested in, in having that kind of somewhat 
scouring conversation with the self. You know, why do I think this? Why do I think this book is is beautiful? Why do I think this other one is banal? Where did those ideas come from? What is the proof in the text? Or what are the sort of borders of my own thought? And I think that when I'm reading criticism that I love and the kind of criticism that I try to write is very interested in how you create those that kind of conversation and how those effects are created on the page and in the piece one one writes. You know, um, I many years ago when when I started working at the New York Public Library nearly two decades ago, I was asked, you know, how I would make decisions, which of course is a question that is asked of you all the time, I imagine. And it's very hard to justify any any of this. But I came up with a, a, a two words. Two words to say how, without a committee, without meetings. I love meeting people, but I don't particularly like meetings in the plural. I love a conversation one-on-one more than with five people because I feel there's greater depth to be gotten. And the two words were... It will be an informed subjectivity, which yeah. re- which reminded me a little bit of what Judith Thurman says when uh, when she's asked about writing biography, and I got this from you. You will know she said that one needed to have a when she was writing her biography, I believe of Colette, a vigilant subjectivity. How do how do these words reverberate with you? Oh, I just, I contract with delight. It's just, uh, it sounds, I mean, it, it, it sounds very beautiful, but you also feel that to maintain that, and when you read somebody like them, and you feel the labor in the prose, you know, and you feel that with somebody like Don Berger, too, who's writing, he, he, doesn't, he never risks, it doesn't glide. You really feel somebody wrestling with what does it mean to be that I'm the person who's looking, I'm the person who's judging and assessing, and that... I am part of a, a moment. I am part of a class. I'm I'm somebody who has had a lot of presuppositions shaped for me. How do I, sitting here, untangle them and um, think through them? So it, it creates in, in certain writers like Thurman and, and Berger who have a sort of density in their prose and a sort of wrestling in their prose. It's drama. I, I love the notion that you prepared to speak with me. And you, 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 you prepared to speak with me and you prepared me to speak with you by giving me a few tips, like a good detective, one needs a few tips. And I've often said that, quoting Pierre Macorlan, that improvisation is something you prepare to a, mm. po- to a point. That's why, we, mm. that's why we have conversations, because we can only do it to a point. And you were mentioning early in our conversation that you had read and reread certain texts. And I'm very interested mm. when we go back to our, our you know, the, the books we read a long time ago. I always remember that Proust said that the first edition of a book is not the first edition of the book, but the first edition in which we read the book. And so we go back and we see ourselves having read these books before. We also, I'm fascinated with this notion of aging and taste. What do we remain faithful to? So what, what in preparing to speak with me, as it were, what did you read or reread that spoke to you now? And maybe even you could read a passage from something you read and tell me something about it. Oh, well, well, you know, I, I had to prepare to 
to speak with you because I think like a lot of people who write, I, I think with my fingers, you know, I, I think when I sit down to write, um, otherwise I kind of just drift and, um, and I, I didn't, I didn't get a chance to, to really delve in, but I certainly snacked a lot and I am sitting here kind of surrounded by papers and, and books that I told you mattered to me and I peeked into them again and, um, and, and tried to also understand why these were supposed to be my representatives to you, you know? And I, I, I tried to find the patterns and tried to find, uh, does it hold up? And I, I sent that message to you off the cuff, and I was like, oh, shit, does it still hold true? And, you know... Well, it sent me into a wonderful adventure where I, too, <laughs> tried to find a pattern, you know, a, a, a yeah. pattern in the rug, as it were. And the pattern, because then you even... You, and when we were first emailing, when we first started emailing a year ago, I don't even know. Yeah. And your questions were so, you know, just so huge and open-ended, sort of like, tell me the music, tell me the writers. And and I, I was thinking today, and I was putting together, the, you know, these artists, these books, what do they have in common? And, you know, some of the artists I mentioned to you, not not maybe the most original picks, but writers that are very moving and important to me. Uh, sorry, artists like Louis Bourgeois and Giacometti, and then I'm thinking about... Um, the journals of Jules Renard. I'm thinking about Bachelard and Maureen and McLean, John Berger. And I think that there's something about the line. That's what connects them. Right. There's something about yeah. the line, the sentence, the, you know, and the artists that matter to me sketch, they, they draw, they put a lot of pressure on, on, uh, on, on, on some form of sentence and narrative. And, um, but also I think in a lot of these, in connecting a lot of these people, including Oscar Wilde, who I told you, is very sort of foundational for me, is that these, that these people don't, except for the exception of Berger, they don't speak to our moment or their moment. They're, they're, they're artists that either speak to the dead or speak to those who are yet to be born. They're mm. asynchronous. And I'm trying to understand why that is something so native to me and so exciting to me. And I think it has something to do with the idea of enjoying when I'm reading anything feeling of privacy you know and, privacy, and, and, uh, and, and a word that mm-hmm. comes back again and again uh, to you is it's both a body the the what you what you refer to when you're writing about uh, Wayne Kirstenbaum with Susan Sontag mm-hmm. and we'll come back to them the desire mm-hmm. to know is carnal desire the, yeah. it really, the, the, this, the notion of, of, of reading, I mean, you mentioned Bach, also the notion of reading and pleasure. Yes. Well, I think that this is something that you've talked about with Wayne, I believe, you know, that, that beautiful idea of Bach, that language is a skin, you right. know, it, it's something that can be touched. It's, um, and I think in a lot of these writers have found ways to embody thinking. So for example, like sitting today and, and, opening up this book, which I love, The Poetics of Space by Gaston Basilab, which is sort of, this, how do you even categorize this? It's a book about poetic language. It's a book about how the architecture of home, our first home, seeps into our architecture of thought. And the whole purpose of the home, he says, is that it is it enables daydreaming and it enables interiority. And when we think about life and we think about what we repress and what we want to bring forward, it is, it is seeded into a particular geography. You know, we don't, you know, we, we think of, um, I don't know, it's like a Wittgenstein thing that, you know, you, you, the thoughts you have are, they inhere in one particular body. 
yeah, you know? Yeah. You can see what you see from where you are standing yeah. and where you have been. And um, and I think the same thing with Bourgeois, making these sort of cells that she used to create to represent different moments in her past. I think that, you know, Jules Renard and his, his journals um, sort of confessing to all any number of sort of writerly envies and bad behavior and resentment and sloth, but... In the sort of the journals are a form of cloister. There's a there's a form of uh, a space is created to sort of secrete these uh, these, these uh, deadly confessions, very funny confessions. Who, who reads? So these are who, some reads of the who reads Jules Renard now? When you mentioned Jules Renard, to me, <laughs> who, who you know, I read when I was in so far that I was growing up. When I was yeah. growing up, I read Jules Renard partly because yeah. I got a European French education. So so Renard, but I I was so stunned, Parole, and I was thinking to myself, this is a very very interesting that that Jules Renard should be should be speaking to you, and and yeah. I think you you just have told us now why and in in reading in reading your the, the two um reviews as it were I, I i i i hesitate to call what you write reviews i think they're indications of what what moves you and they have they have nearly autobiographical hints in them um of things that matter to you um, and, and perhaps I'll be able to unpack this. It's it's a dim idea for me. I'm not yet sure I know what I mean. But you you, you in, in in reviewing, yes, you 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 do review review um, Moses' book on um, on on Sontag. Yes, you give it um, not not the most positive review uh, one could imagine. But you you speak in it. You find. A way of speaking in it of your love of Susan Sontag. It's so so obvious, so deep, so immediate, and you go for the the good Sontag, not the bad Sontag, as the difference that that Salman Rushdie did uh, made uh, of of Sontag. And in it, you mention Sontag at fourteen being a demon reader. Were you such yeah. a reader? Yeah, I was. Uh, um I think I've, I think I've written about it once or twice, but you know, um, you know, I, I grew up moving a lot every three years. We, we, we frequently moved to places where you know mm. English wasn't spoken, and um, the books became, you know, they were they were they became my society in a way, you know. And 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 on top of that, I had the sort of greatest gift that a young reader can have, which is a mother who had the most fantastic. Um, corrupting library, and she forbid us, forbid us. So, if you really want children to read, ban the books. We were forbidden from entering this room, and all we wanted to do was steal her books, and that's all my sister and I did for years. We would carry books, you know, hidden in the back of our pants, and uh, read. We were just, and I think because we were discovering it without knowing that it was important or, or, you know good literature, bad literature, it just didn't matter. Access is what is what directed us, you know? So we didn't know that André Gide had this kind of reputation or not. We just knew that that book was slim enough that we could put it behind <laughs> behind our shirt, and there were some excellent filthy bits. And so when you come to reading in this kind of way that is not systematic, that is really governed by appetite, that is really governed by um, 
I don't know, and sort of laced with this idea of something that is subversive and secret, and that never leaves you. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was that kind of reader where I just, you know, I, and I still, to some degree, that does govern my relationship with reading. You know, I um, you know, still will read until my eyes burn, you know, and uh, have had to go to City MD more than once. <laughs> <laughs> for, this, for this thing, but it's, it is it is something that uh, uh, yeah, it's it's something that uh, it's so delicious. One wants to abuse it a little bit, you know. You want to read yourself into a super earnest wound, but I think that there's also a, a link between, at least for me, that I feel uh, that kind of reading and the most pleasurable aspect of criticism. Paul, have you read the new Lewis Hyde book? Oh my God. Oh, a primer for forgetting. Did you oh, read it? Not not only did I forget it, not only did I read it, but I spoke to uh, Lewis Hyde oh, on did. a phone call from Paul, which I'll send to okay, you. Okay, I need to go. Um, I need to track that no, down. No, no, it was. Uh, but tell me why. Tell me why this passion. Well, this book is amazing. This book is just, it's so extraordinary, and I'm I'm so saddened that it hasn't sort of entered the conversation in a bigger way, given how much we're talking about memory and we're talking about just you know national memory and, and, and monuments and all this sort of stuff. But there is, there is in, this, in, the, in that book this fantastic little anecdote from John Cage that I wonder if you remember. And he was talking about when you're in the studio and you first start to make something. In the beginning, everybody's in the room with you. Your critics, your enemies, your lovers, your mother, you know, your rivals. And worst of all, all your ideas and your past and slowly, as you start making something, people start leaving. And after a while, he said, when you're really lucky, you're alone. And then if you're really lucky, even you leave. And I think that there's something about that kind of concentration in, in a book, whether you're reading it or whether you're writing about it, the sort of bliss of self-forgetfulness that can happen feels very rapturous and I know and I and I'm a fan of this idea that you know that criticism can be a form of vicarious autobiography and lots of the critics I love have some element of that and of course it's going to creep in with our adjectives what we elevate what we deride but there's also that that real excitement of just sort of being the person who vanishes and you can just say look and I think that that can feel if you're uh, inclined in that sort of way a kind of narcotic pleasure of itself you know um parul uh you 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 should you should know how excited i feel by what you just said not not only do i know lewis hyde's book and this anecdote but very recently i quoted that very same passage and it reminded me of something i've said that that um i believe in so deeply i mean uh, on the one hand, I could never fall in love with somebody whose voice I, I, I didn't love. And then mm-hmm. I've, I've said, as you know, that the reason we love people is because we share their adjectives. And I'd like to nearly expand that by saying the, the reason we, the, the kind of elective affinities we have for people, or at least I do have for people, are people whose quotations I share. So yeah. in a conversation I had for another program I do called The Quarantine Tapes, where I speak to people about this present moment and uh, the kind of paradigmatic shift that's happening at this moment with the pandemic and now with with uh, the other virus of racism, um, I um, 
quoted that very passage to, oh to Meredith Monk because it seemed, it seemed to me that that cage moment is so extraordinary. And Lewis Hyde, I'm, I'm so grateful to him, and it reminds me that I must send him that conversation too because I, I used him. And so it, 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 it strikes me that certain, there's certain writers that matter to us and there's certain moments in those writers that matter to us. And there, there are these two two reviews that I, I, truly, I truly love and I've put side by side, which is a review you did of uh, Benjamin Moses' um, study, let us say, of Susan Sontag, and then um, someone who, who we also really both admire, as it were, is, is Wayne Kirstenbaum's most recent book, um, uh, f- Figure It Out. And what I what I love in that review is the way in which you um, nearly mimic and match his playfulness, his tongue delirium, as you say, quoting Roman yeah. Jacobson. So I'm 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 wondering when you review a book such as Wayne's, how do you go about it? With Wayne, it's very difficult because, yeah. I mean, it's in the sense that I, I, um, I am so indebted to him. You know, I feel like he opened up uh, so many vistas for me, and I've just read every single thing he's ever written. And when you write something like that, you know, I mean, I think of my my job as as not serving the writer. I serve the reader. Mm, I serve mm. I serve. Um, and not to sound like grandiose, but you serve like literature in a certain sense. You serve all of these kinds of conversations, but I don't think of serving the writer. But then it's difficult when it is somebody who I do feel is a kind of guru, you know? Then you want, on some level, like it's always in the back of your mind, I want to show you how much I've thought about your work. I want to show you what it matters, how it matters. I want to sort of um, maybe even present a lineage or something, you know? So you, you have that sort of haunting you, and especially with something like this, um, this is his latest book, um, and I love the fact that you're you're putting it in conversation with Sontag. Because speaking of lineage, you know, um, Wayne, I think, is said of Sontag that she's the prime mover of his text. I think that's the quote. Um, and uh, so that idea that all of us who are writing criticism are writing influenced by people, writing towards other people, and. You know, I, I was actually thinking about this before we were, we were going to speak, that there is a real lineage in a lot of the writers that I mentioned to you that I, I care so deeply about, from Bach to Sontag to Kestenbaum, you know, like there's the clear, the clear, the deaths are there, and they've all written about each other, and, and it's sort of, um, it, it can feel humbling, it can feel very exciting to sort of make your own offering and to say that this is what I see you've done. And then there's also the excitement of, bringing his work to readers who haven't heard of him, you know, and to sort of do justice to the kinds of ideas he's enthralled with, his use of language. Um, and I think especially in Wayne's work, to, and, and, and Sontag also, but speaking of people that are asynchronous and, you know, there's something that they're doing and something that they represent, and especially in the case of Wayne right now, that is in real short supply, you know, and that's, for me, it feels like a kind of criticism that has that shimmer, that has that wit, that has that sort of excitement about ideas that isn't 
you know, it, it, it isn't interested in scolding. And I think right, when I think right. of so much criticism no, right now, yeah. it just seems so purse mouthed and um, stingy and afraid. And it feels like it doesn't, so much of it doesn't seem to have experience of life. And I think when I read Wayne's work or I read Susan Sontag's, there is this breadth of experience that they're also bringing to their to their prose. And, you know, and I think about a lot of the critics that really matter to me from John Berger or Orwell or um, poets too like Shelley, like there was this real impetus to go out and to pursue experiences and to bring life into the work. So it isn't just that you're living, you know, these sorts of papery lives drifting from text to text, but there's a real sense of, of, of the work of these ideas in the world. And um, so you always, so I feel like in the case of the, the, the the reviews of Kestenbaum was to also sort of elevate this this voice and this sort of sensibility that I just I don't I don't see very much. I, I love this notion of haunting and, you know, this notion of haunting, which for me takes a place of, of quotation. As you know, I'm, I'm a quotomaniac by profession and I, there, there's certain quotations that matter to me so much. And when I myself am in conversation with people or interview them or I'm in dialogue with them, I will often, and this is what you were saying earlier, reading the books you, you had read a long time ago, saying, oh my God, I'm rediscovering this. I forgot it, but I knew it all along and I haven't looked at it for 10 years but I'm still repeating the same sentence over and over again and I do that all the time because I love to see the reaction a certain quotation will have on on someone uh, the same quotation on someone and and that that will in in a way offer the temperature of the person I'm speaking to, and you know, in the in the case of Sontag, I've I've walked around in in my life, as it were, with Sontag sentences, or mm. um, you know, two two people you love, Oscar Wilde and uh, and Sontag. Wilde, mm. uh, you know, it is only superficial people who do not judge by experience, and Sontag saying, um, uh, uh, talking about about. Travel, she says. Just wait until now becomes then. You'll see yeah. how happy we were. Yeah. yeah. And and and, yeah. and there, what matters to me particularly in the Suntag is what a tense can do. Just wait until now becomes then. You'll see how happy we were. I'm wondering how that resonates with you when I say it. And it resonates. I think. I think. Um, on so many levels, what you're saying dovetails with something that I've been thinking about a lot, and this quote especially. Um, you know, it, critics, I think, are in the in the strange position of having to sort of respond quickly to books and to theater, and sometimes reflexively. And um, and but we all know that that the real experience of art is it's a very slow kind of dawning. You know, it's we we live mm. with these quotes and they they nag at us. And I I, I always like pay very close attention in the same way to whose whose words return to me unbidden, involuntarily almost. You know, and it's it's not it's not just that I love them. There's something there that has to be unlocked. There's something there that it needs to be uh, you know revealed. And um and I think that again, I think I, I love the way that this conversation is kind of 
circling the same few ideas. But again, this idea of rereading and coming back to text and saying that I'm not done with you. I haven't seen you. I haven't fully, um, I haven't, I haven't fully understood everything that you have to say. And, uh, and to go back and to experience your younger self reading and, and feeling enraptured by it and also think that now, you know, now I see something different now, you know, this is the sort of conversation with the self that can keep happening. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I think also that 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 idea that uh, the the quotes and the adjectives for as a, as a sort of litmus test for a person and a sensibility is is very is very real and uh, and I think that I, looking at the writers that I was talking to you about and, and sending your way a lot of them are shared you know a lot of the same adjectives flicker and float back and forth from these books in a in a really strange and surprising way. You 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 sent me a quotation because I also asked you what are the quotations, I mean I wrote you a very open ended email. It is true and it is true that it is about a year ago. So um th this is a I mean for me a, a very, very grand moment. You quoted somebody who I really didn't know and had to look up, a person called Ian Penman. Um, com yeah. completely new to me. So thank you, thank you for that, rule. And Ian Penman wrote, you have to choose your words carefully, carnally. You have to find a crucial metaphor. Tell me about yeah. that. And, 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 and what is the kind of crucial metaphor you are trying to find when you write those reviews? Oh my God! Well, Penman is interesting because Penman is a is a rock critic, and I—I yeah. he, I mean, he's an example of the kind of critic that I—I I, I, I fall in love with these critics, even if I care nothing about what they're writing about. You know, I care nothing about like food, for example, but I love food criticism. Mm. You know, I care very little about fashion, but I love to read people talk about clothes. Um, I love, yeah, and again, it goes back to the adjectives. I love that uh, um, I can, I can, you know, hopefully filch some of their interesting adjectives and ways of thinking about things. But um, in the case of Penman, I think that uh, he's another quote which you might also love. Um, he also says that uh, what, he, what he wants from criticism is an unconscionable swerve, heretical detail, and some shiver of incomprehension. Which is just, it's just you feel it up your spine, you know? It's, yeah, it, um, it, it gives you what Nabokov said good literature should do, which is give you that a tingle. tingle in your yeah. spine, yes. Yeah, it gives you that tingle, and I think, and I, and where does that come from? I think it comes from a critic, you know, who's writing this review, who you expect to go to to say, okay, lay out this this work of art. Tell me why it matters. Tell me if it's good or bad. Should I buy the record? Should I go to the concert? And instead, he's saying that that there is that, that there has to be some element of the unknown, something that has yet to be unlocked, yet something that is yet to be revealed. So the idea of this sort of um, you know, but there's still something secretive and fugitive is, I find, very exciting that, you know, um, that, that a piece should have, that a piece of prose should have. Um, but in terms of, like, the carnal metaphor, you know, there's so many different kinds of critics, and I don't know if I'm somebody who necessarily thinks in, in metaphor per se, but I do think that I am interested in, in, um, in that sort of just, reading with that sort of kind of carnality and with that kind of appetite and with that kind of uh, expectation and awareness that it's, it's going to be an intellectual experience, but it's also going to be a somatic experience. It's also going to be an experience that's not, that, that can't even fully be understood in this particular moment, you know, um, and has to go back and reread. But, uh, 
um, yeah, I just, I mean, that's something that's sort of that, that spirit of uh, uh, that governing that governing spirit of how to read and, and, and with what kind of attentiveness and, and hope and awareness is very, very important to me. When one when one reads, one one brings one's body. It is a bodily experience. One one doesn't leave it behind, as it were. Even if one, um, in the John Cage quotation that we both so love, even if the the goal in some way is to nearly become disembodied. Yeah, but I think the interesting the interesting. Um, one of the interesting mysteries, I think, in all criticism is, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a lovely, uh, uh, t- actually two, I mean, we, can, we can have a festival of quotes, Paul, because I'm also a bit of a quotomaniac, so it's two a, quotes for you. It's okay, nobody's perfect. Go ahead. <laughs> so, two quotes for you that kind of go together in my mind. Um, one by Gertrude Stein, if you like it, you understand it. And the second one is by it's college. I don't know where he said this, but I, I just can't get this one out of my mind. I know sooner felt than I thought to understand. Mm. So what interests me about these two and what interests me about reading as something as, you know, physical experience is then how do we fully understand and bring that into language? How do we bring that into ideas without strangling the text, you know, without, uh, narrowing it, without minimizing it, without domesticating it? Um, how do you create a space to, to register that and, and to sort of really reckon with the ideas, but also leaving some, some room for just um, the description of, of what that text has felt like entering the body? Um, and, and there are not many people that do this well. I think that that's one reason why we come back to people like Wayne's work in this way, because He's, he's able to sort of marry, you know, that kind of pressure on ideas with this blissful kind of dance of, you know... Um, dance, celebration, I mean, you know... Celebration. Celebration, he, he hasn't... I, I think he has no patience for people who, who drink Drano in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like in, I think his work, I think the, the the poet and painter and critic James Schuyler's work is also full of full of that kind of delight and that kind of um, it's just, it's a way of being awake and it's a way of being alert and alerting you and and creating I think also in the context of what they're writing a separate aesthetic experience that has its own beauty and necessity and solidity that feels really, really special to me, that, that stands next to something, that stands next to that work of art. I think this is why I read so much criticism and never go in, in pursuit of the books that are being criticized. Right, right. <laughs> or, or I'm very happy to read the reviews, and sometimes I'll go see the painting, sometimes I'll go see the show, but I think that, you know, the experience of looking over the shoulder of a beloved critic is just somehow even, you know... It doesn't get better than that for me. So, Parul, what what do you do with anger? Hmm. 
with my own anger, other people's anger, exploding um, anger. <laughs> I le- as you as you as you immediately knew, um, I left the question so terribly op- <laughs> so terribly open, right? So that uh, and, and left a, a, a pregnant silence which you immediately filled. Um, no, um, I, I let me. I'll go through one form of anger. Mm-hmm. Um, books are sent to you. Uh, books are given to you by by editors at the the New York Times Book Review. I imagine you have some say uh, as to what you will and what you won't review. We don't need to go mm. into that. That interests me quite a bit less. But you get a book, and let's leave it nameless, but I think I have a few in my head, um, mm. and you don't like it. But you are, by disposition, uh, close to Wayne and want to celebrate... Um, and want to remain ajar, but nevertheless, here it is, and a review mm-hmm. is due in a week's mm-hmm. time by a famous writer. Mm-hmm. I'm not scared of that. You know, I, that doesn't bother me at all. As long as that I feel it's, it's. Uh, I mean, I have to keep a close eye on it because when I do read something that I dislike, and especially by it's, if it's by a writer who I have loved or respected, and something is, you know it's just gone off the rails, I can feel tremendous anger. I can feel tremendous disappointment. And then you have to channel, in the same way that one channels delight or admiration into a piece of writing that has to make a case. You know, um, you, it, it's not enough to say that thumbs up or thumbs down. You have to make a case for what was being essayed, what happened, and then why does it matter that the book is bad? That's also an interesting point. Mm. You know, I don't think I'm very interested in reviewing books and just saying, well, this one was shitty. No, like there has to be some kind of, some something has gone wrong. Something can be really tweezed out of it to sort of make a case for why, you know, review this book. It's not just to shame it, you know, but there's some kind of, either some kind of technique is being used oddly or something is being done. But you're, you're, you're constantly also thinking, or at least I'm trying to, when I, when I pan a book, also trying to think about, um, what makes a book work? You know, what makes a device work? And, and you know, there aren't any rules about this sort of thing, I don't think. And, I, you know, I'm not really interested in, in, in those kinds of critics who yeah. like to create systems and laws for this sort of stuff. Everyone sort of feels like its own proposition, its own, its own you know, kite that they're trying to get a lot. And when it falls, and I'm, it's very interesting to me. And um, so there is a... Uh, you know, there's no reluctance on my part to be very honest about those feelings. And um, but it, you have to proceed with evidence. You have to proceed with quotation. You have to make a case, and that's something that I try to be careful about. And um, and uh, yes, I mean, I, I don't even know if I experience it as anger. I think I experience it as usually some kind of disappointment right which which um, uh, which is interesting right disappointment is more interesting than anger in this in this case because disappointment goes again to to a kind of proximity and appetite and a yeah. w- and, and a wish and a hope um, and I don't know I'm also very interested in failed texts I'm interested in failure I'm interested really? in you know and I think that How so? some of my well I mean texts are ungainly objects You know, they're not bridges. They're not, you know, they're not orthodontics. Like, they're they're very, 
um, mysterious. And I, I would come back to books later and, and, and realize that something that I, I thought was a flaw, only later I'll be like, oh, this is why it matters. Or, or maybe I've lived with it long enough the way you live with a person and I can still see something beautiful and it's important that it should be there, you know? So we're making a case as we write reviews the best we can in the moment to sort of say, this struck me in this particular way. This is the argument I, I'm going to make. But I don't know if that's the final word even for ourselves. Right. You know? Thank God. Um, thank God, uh, Perul. I mean, the final word for ourselves is not a good moment. Oh, God. How dull. How yeah, dull. No, yeah, I, it's, 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 it's really not a good uh, really not a good moment. And what interested me so much here, as you said, it's like with a person. I mean, the worst thing you can say about being with someone is not I like you, I don't like you, I love you, I don't love you, but yeah. you, you bore me. Yeah. yeah, I know. And I think, I don't know, I feel like I relate. Like, I'm sure like a lot of people who've grown up with their books and still um, have this particular kind of relationship with them, I think I relate to them a little bit like people, you know. They're, they have secrets from themselves sometimes. You know, they are evasive, and um, and in, in the case of lots and lots of writers and lots and lots of books, the flaws come very closely allied with the talent. You know, mm-hmm. and so how do you begin to unpeel those things? You know, you don't. You don't. I think it's the creative vocabulary of criticism, like people like Virginia Woolf did, where it isn't just that I love or I hate, but how. Yes. You know, how did this book? How, how did this book, uh, um, you know, how is this book doing what it's doing? Um, and, then, and again, I'm speaking of Wolf, one of like an absolutely savage critic, you know, who I think one of her, one of her lines that I love is that the real delight in reviewing is to say nasty things, you know, <sighs> but you know, when you read the, the breadth of her work and you read the breadth of her, uh, engagement with, with, with fiction and she's really, really interested, not in the, in the, in the yes or the no, but Also, the how and you know. the the how. Um, you know, I've I've been rereading sometimes in 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 uh, uh, Virginia Woolf. I've been rereading her criticism of Proust. It's so amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so yeah, amazing incredible. because it's so because it's so fresh. It's it you know yeah. Proust wasn't yet Proust the way we know him today. What I find remarkable, and I said that I concentrated my my preparation in speaking to you on these two reviews, very recent reviews. One of of Benjamin Moses' book on Sontag, and the other one, uh, your review of of Wayne Kirstenbaum, his most recent book, but also in in a way, it was an homage to his oeuvre as I as I read it. And what what um, what struck me about the Moser review is that though you don't particularly take to his um, his method and his analysis, as it were, of, of Sontag, you find a way of speaking very favorably of his. His other work, his his work yeah. on on Les Spectres, sort of yeah. sort of telling the the reader, don't give up on Benjamin Moser, um, because he's he's done extremely good work, and here maybe he got, for a number of reasons we don't need to get go into now, he he got lost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that's I think that was important to me. You know, having read having read his beautiful biography. Of, of the specter and um, and uh, and I think, but also enjoying 
I'm not enjoying, you know, I, you know, there's something about even the ways that the book doesn't work, and I think I tried to describe this in my review, that is very Sontagian, you know? Yeah. It's full of, it's full of the things that she warned about, you know? Don't find, don't, don't find, or be wary of metaphors, you know? Be wary of these sorts of things. And, you know, the, my, my dissatisfaction with the book is that it really wants to make her into a sort of metaphor, and it wants to say that she's more important as the sort of, the myth of her is more important than the, than the woman, than the writer. And actually, crucially, the writer. I felt like, you know, there was, uh, there was not enough about, for my liking, about the actual work and the thinking and the, and the pressure on her ideas and the contradictions of her own ideas. And I think that contradiction itself was treated as a sort of failing in the book, where I think for those of us who love Sontag, it's that she wants it both ways. Right. You know, it's that, uh, oh God, I'm forgetting who said this about her work. Um, but that she, she, she pivots in a sentence in a really strange way, and she wants to think of things prismatically, and that's not the way that we're used to thinking of polemicists and nonfiction writers as working. That's the way we're used to thinking of novelists as working, you know. Which, and so, which after all, was her great ambition. Her great ambition, and, and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. the less said of those novels, some of them, the better. But, but you know, but that drama happened in her essays, which was this sort of turning things over from every side, and it's maddening. And um, But, yeah, I think that, that to, to create that balance in a review, to also say that, you know, the other work of this writer is important and, and worthy, and, in fact, might have colored my expectations of this one, you know, because and, and, I was such a fan of that other one. And therefore, and therefore, rather than anger, um, disappointment, um, nearly like a love, lover's disappointment. Yeah, a disappointment, the one with the writer, but then also I think that, uh, yeah, I think that that's fair. I don't know, yeah, I think that that's, um, well, also because, I'm going to take it into them. Yeah, and also because, you know, uh, if you put a writer like like Sontag on a pedestal and a huge book is written about her, you want it to be phenomenal and feeling and and feeling disappointed me means you know it isn't it didn't quite do it for me and and perhaps it didn't do it for Sontag now in closing Perul sadly might I say very sadly for me um could I I one thing we haven't spoken about at all is what I take to be a, a, a real passion another passion of yours apart from painting and 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 reading uh, m musical criticism is poetry and um I'm I'm wondering if if poetry fuels your criticism if you you go back to poets in order to to write You know I do I it's it, I, I I definitely do. I read poetry the way I read everything, which is very very unsystematically and self taught. And uh, uh, yeah, I think the the poets have been, you know, people like Marianne Moore, people like like Lucio Clifton, people. I mean, there's so many that have been my load stars. I think when it comes to also talking, I mean, not Clifton in this case, but. Um, you know, language is, is used to conceal somebody like Marianne Moore, somebody like Emily Dickinson. Language not as communication, but language as armor. Language as something as a way to keep people out. I think it's very interesting to me. And uh, I think uh, I find very exciting because we usually think of it the opposite, you know, right. that 
language frees meaning and the critic will come and release it along the other way, but it, language is, is directed to do all kinds of odd things. And, um, and I think that poetry, I, you, you know, you can see such a wide variety of it, but I also just thought I love the poetry critics. I love the people that brought me poetry. Um, so, yeah, definitely, definitely um, a, a big source of, you know, profitable comfort and contamination, I is, think. Is there, any, is, is there any any poem at this moment that comes to your mind that you might read for us? You know, I was thinking um, today is Lucille Clifton's birthday, and I thought I could read two poems, short ones by her. How wonderful. That how I wonder, what, a, yeah. what, what a treat. And, and we'll, we'll close this conversation with Clifton's voice and your voice reading her. Okay, lovely. Um, let me see. Are these the two ones I want? I've got one consoling and one frightening. So which one do you want? The good news or the bad news, first of all? I leave it entirely up to you. <laughs> I'm, an, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bad news person first. Uh, so let's go. It's my dream about time. A woman unlike myself is running down the long hall of a lifeless house with too many windows which open on a world she has no language for, running and running until she reaches, at last, the one and only door, which she pulls open to find each wall is faced with clocks, and as she watches, all of the clocks strike no. So that's my dream about time. And now I'm going to read a poem called Blessing the Boat. May the tide that is entering even now, the lip of our understanding, carry you out beyond the face of fear, May you kiss the wind and turn from it, certain that it will love your back. May you open your eyes to water, water waiting forever. And may you and your innocence sail through this to that. Parul, it's been really a distinct pleasure to speak to you, and it was, in my view, worth the wait. And I, I, thank, so I, I thank you so much, and stay safe, and... I hope I hope before too long we meet again. Thank you for everything. Thank you for everything you do, and thank you for what we get to read and discover and rediscover. There's so much more to say, but for now, thank you so much for being on a phone call from Paul, and all the very very best to you. It's such an honor. Thank you so much, Paul, for having me. Take good care. Bye bye. Bye bye.